0: Welcome to Talk Design Show, where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey, your host. And having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening and please enjoy. My guest on Talk Design today is Sarah Kalata. Now, Sarah is a business mentor, and she works a lot with architects. Beyond that, she is an architect, and she has a real interest in being a bit of a disruptor and looking at the business of architecture way beyond just the design. She's very passionate about certain levels of the design and the way that's presented, But beyond that, she's very passionate about helping other architects and design people to maximize their potential. And in maximizing their potential, they bring a better product to the world. And in bringing a better product to the world, we all all grow. We all get something special. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. How are you?
1: Wow. Thank you so much for this amazing introduction. So genuine. And I love it. I might steal some taglines (laughs) from it.
0: Of course. Well, you have your own podcast as well. So tell us about that quickly and then we'll dive back into a bit of history. But tell us about your podcast.
1: Sure. So my podcast is called Architecture Talk Tank and I invite different guests from around the world to talk about business of architecture, marketing, but also developing as architects. I'm interested in mindset, I'm interested in interesting ways or alternative ways of earning an income and different ways of looking at the architecture industry from a perspective of business and profitability. So I think we've reached uh, over 50 guests now. Most of the show is on YouTube, so you can find it under Sarah Colata on YouTube. And yeah, and um, I stream those, those podcasts. I'm not like a super regular poster, because it's something I do for fun. I don't, uh, I don't want to have like a live where, you know, every Monday or every Thursday, I have to at a certain time post. <laughs> um but I do it spontaneously and it works because sometimes I get more guests, sometimes less, but uh, usually it's, it's very organic. And I always stream to LinkedIn and Facebook. So essentially if you want to tune in, just um, find me online under Sarah Colata with a K. We'll and, post, uh, we'll
0: post that as well. Yeah. We'll post it so <laughs> people can find it. I, look, one of the things that I love about your business model is the digital side of what you're doing with it. And, the ability to take the technology of being able to stream it online, like you say, to LinkedIn and like, you know, to Facebook, et cetera, and share, just share that knowledge. Um, it's inspired me to the point where I go, you know what? I think I'm going to um, share my some of my podcasts. I do always go, what happens when it doesn't go well? You know, when I say go well, in podcasting world we all end up with guests with different energy and part of the thing of being a host of a podcast is read the energy and then guide the people you know we we never want to make somebody look stupid or foolish or anything else but guide the people but the bigger thing that i find is is that we often have technology issues you know suddenly we'll have a crash in technology or something and when you're doing that live how do you how do you cope with that what what happens
1: I mean, I think um, because I travel, right? So my priority is always to have good internet. So like before I find a flat, for example, if I move to a place like Spain, yes. which was certainly my, my move, I just wanted to know that I live on the street that has fiber optic internet uh, because not the whole town has it. So <laughs> I needed to find an apartment on the street that has fiber optic so that I can at least take that box off and I don't have the sort of, Random situation where you know, oh, I'm using satellite internet and actually today it's really slow. And out of a sudden, we have this really bad disturb. You know, yeah,
0: sure, it's it's raining and it's or whatever or thunderstorms, and suddenly you get a
1: disturbed. Yeah, but um, but also I often have a situation where my guests are showing up; they don't have good internet, Uh and we have to work with this. And to be honest with you. Um, one of the reasons why for the longest time I haven't uploaded the podcast on iTunes was because the voice, the the actual audio wasn't the best. A lot of uh-huh. times podcasters will start with this super professional equipment and they start recording with like, you know, the filters for pee and whatever. I don't have any of that. I actually, um, I have this really weird setup where I use um, like a uh, uh, sort of like a, a hand cream and I have a microphone attached to it. <laughs> and uh, I want to show you. And, so you, uh, yeah. so you,
0: you've you got a, a, a tube of hand cream and you pin your microphone Basically, to the top of it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like it's it's this, you know. And- I love it. I love it. <laughs> That's my podcasting equipment, you know. Um, so obviously... I know that my sound will be okay. It's not that it's not like your microphone, but um, but a lot of times people show up just with their headphones or like uh, sure. a microphone attached to their headphones or just the microphone that is with their laptop, and um, and just you can't do anything about it. So honestly, I don't put too much attention into the tech side of things. Sometimes yes. it happens that we will promote a talk. Recently, I started to do these um talk series, lecture series, where I invite architects and they give a lecture. And, uh, you know, and we posted one. And then on that day, the architect who was coming on got ill and we already had it all advertised on social media. And then, you know, it just didn't happen. And I did get some messages of people saying, oh, I was looking forward to it. I just said, hey, it's happening tomorrow at the same time, you know, and it's just not a big deal. I think it's important to sort of, See all of those things as tools, but not to become a slave to them. And I, I really, what you said before about sort of how you, um, you know, you like the way I kind of leverage digital transformation, uh-huh. digital tools for my business. I always look at them as a way for making things easier, my life easier, my business easier. So if I can achieve something like an outreach campaign or uh, a promotion for my business through using these tools and it doesn't take so much of my time to arrange it, then I will use that. But if I out of a sudden become, you know, like, way too busy with a campaign, or it takes, um, you know, it takes away the fun from running that business, then I'm always a bit wary. And so that I took um, into the way I run my social media too. You know, I'm not like a crazy Instagrammer. There's a lot of people that love to post their life on Instagram. I always, um, I'm always a little bit behind on everything that's happening <laughs> in my life to post. But it's because I've never been a social media, like, the person and right before I started this business, I did not like to post anything personal on social media, and so it took a lot for me to already like open up to start doing this, you know. And I don't, I just don't want it to take over my life and be like, okay, on Tuesday, you have uh. to post a story, and on Wednesday, you have to do your podcast, and on uh-huh. Thursday, you have to write a blog. I don't want that to be like this, so I always said. I'm sorry if it's disappointing for anyone, but I create content when I feel like it. And then I know I show up 100% and I'm really happy to be there. So that's just my rule. And I think it's important to use those tools um, the way that suits you instead of like, you know, kind of crazing over it and becoming a little bit of a slave to it. Because sometimes you don't have enough time or sometimes it's just a little bit too much responsibility, you know, and why take that on? If it's just something you were meant to be doing for fun, right? I,
0: I think I think there's, yeah, there's a really good point in there that I, I, I'll reference it back to, I did an interview with an amazing Australian woman called Samantha Wills, and she's a very, very famous jewelry designer and, you know, big empire around the world. And she eventually closed the empire because she'd lost her joy of designing the jewelry. And she set up her coaching business, which is well, it's I wouldn't even say it's coaching. It's more, um, she's done some online programs. She's a, an ambassador for certain brands and things like this. But I said to Sam, I said, so, well, how do you find your people? I shouldn't say Sam, she actually wears a T-shirt that says Samantha, not Sam. So Samantha, I said, "How do you find your people? How do you find your tribe?" And she goes, "Well, there's however many billion people on this planet, I figure they'll find me. I'd just be me and I' be authentic, and I do it the way that I do it, which is with passion, which is with a lot of um, expertise and a lot of precision, because that's who I am. And my people will find me. And the ones who find me who don't like me, that's fine too. They can, they can come and go as they choose. And I was like, you know, it's such a, a powerful point. If you put yourself out there authentically, then the people who understand that and feel that and that you're giving to, Will, will will be attracted and hold on. The people who don't, won't. And, and that's what you want. That's how, that's how we make friends in life. We find commonality. We find um, energy. We transfer our energy between each other. And in doing that, we create friendships. And those friendships either get deeper or they stay at that level. They just stay surface or else they get deeper and deeper. Um, so let's jump from... Your podcast, and I, and and the fact that you do what you do with it, you know that you do promote it. So there's lots of opportunity for people to find it. Let's jump back to. You were studying architecture, and I'm sure you're a creative girl. So there's a, there's a lot of things you could have studied. Somewhere in that journey, you said, "I'm going to be an architect," and in studying architecture, then you found your passion for what part of architecture made the difference. You know, there's architects who build skyscrapers or design skyscrapers. There's architects who design tents, you know, and, and you know, emergency housing. And there's architects who design beautiful residential or there's architects who design very average residential. Um, what is your passion there within the architecture field and your expertise and what is it that made you love it? What made you, what lit your fire?
1: So I think that um, when I look back at the whole journey, I would say that every single time that I made like a bigger life decision, it was because of frustration. And so um, when I went to architecture school, I was sort of taught to admire, you know, the big famous architects we studied, Rem Koolhaas and Zaha Hadid and, you know, how they think and what they do. And it almost was like a definition of success and I didn't know any other way. Uh yeah maybe for example what my tutors did at university right and because i went to central san martin's so it was just down the road from the bartlett ucl architecture and then the aa um so also we kind of had influences from there and of course i could get inspired by the academic path for architects um which is awesome um or the, imp- the sort of implementation bit, it was always about the famous. And so I think that I lacked a lot of understanding really of like what business of architecture truly is, and how does it feel um, to be an architect until I went to um, to do my internship in Shanghai. And I realized that to get to where these people are, it's a very long journey. And you need to start from this very humble position of being a CAD monkey. Unfortunately, I'm <laughs> sort of allergic to not only having a boss, but also to doing repetitive things over and over again, especially like when the creativity is limited to sort of AutoCAD, yeah. Uh, yeah. I can't, I need to work with my hands. I need to get sort of, I even, I love building, you know, I even love to kind of actually physically get involved with with the construction, but at the at, back then I didn't really know how else can I do it. All I knew is that I wasn't really enjoying my internship. And there was also other aspects to it where, you know, in China, I obviously had an opportunity to visit a lot of amazing buildings of the architects that I sort of studied at school. Sure. And I saw sure. certain or like not only saw, but also there were some kind of stories going around about some buildings that, you know, there was... Shanghai Expo 2010 and then right after we were Olympics and Zaha Hadid was building something, you know, and then the building was never open to public because they sort of messed up with the engineering. I don't know. And you hear of all these stories and you're thinking, wow, these people get these opportunities to build these dream, dream structures. Right. But then somehow they don't really come to be. And it's just like a massive throwaway of money and everything. And I always was sort of thinking about the local people and the, like, I was very much exposed to what happens with the local community you know because all these mega structures were built at the cost of like selling loads of plots of land that originally belonged to to indigenous people and they were sort of like misplaced and that whole aspect of misplacement where do they go um how much money they actually get for that land in comparison to then having like mega corporations building on it right yeah so like the rich get richer the poor get poorer kind of idea and And I was like kind of concerned by it and started to notice that a lot of the principles of architecture that have been taught are not actually human centric or, you know, environment centric or. And so that was the first shift, I guess, where I started to get more and more interested in sustainability. And upon coming back to England and finishing my my BA in architecture, I actually chose a topic on sustainability to write about. And then what followed was I started to get more and more interested in other applications of architecture and researching companies and people that were um, a little bit more focused on sustainability and people. I think people were, was even a more important factor for right, me. So it was centric and around people. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so that's really what got me into humanitarian architecture. And I must admit that at the very beginning of this journey, I was not, um, very money focused so you know you might have uh people that go into practice and they it's very important for them to have a stable salary because your parents have a certain idea of how much you should be earning or how you sh- you know y- y- whatever you 100%. do right i i yeah. did i wasn't there i was more mission centered and, and obsessed with like doing the right thing what i felt was right so I ended up um, getting a job in a charity in Guatemala and very quickly got sort of put into managing a bunch of school buildings and disaster relief projects and housing because they were doing huge volumes of building and there was only one other architect in the company that was working there. Um, So I was in the field every day and I just loved it. but with that, also, I saw some ways in which perhaps the way they were delivering architecture wasn't really how we were taught to think about architecture. And there were some um, things that problems that were occurring from a lack of architectural thinking or design uh-huh. thinking, you know. And one of which was, for example, that the local community of Mayan people in Guatemala was very used to cook outdoors. That's what they do. They make fire and they cook outdoors. But when the charity started to build houses for them, they would always put a kitchen in the indoor place. And what these people did was just brought the fire indoors, <laughs> like because that's what they're used to. You know, this is what cooking for them meant. Yeah. And next thing you know, within ten years, a lot of people started to get lung cancer because they're sitting in the fumes cooking indoors. And I was like, oh my god, this is horrible. I mean, what we're doing is worse than
0: yeah. You know, you're creating you're fire. creating a bigger problem than you're solving.
1: Huge. Exactly. And so I was like, whoa, this is and again, frustration, you see, again, I was like, angry, actually angry inside. And I thought, okay, no, like, I might be just 24. But I do not want to continue with this. And I think now I've learned some Spanish, I learned I got to know some local builders, and I realized that some of them had knowledge in building with earth, bamboo, and local materials. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I'm going to just start working with these people. There's a lot of need. As long as we find a charity or a, a company or maybe a church organization that can sponsor our projects, then we've got to build. And that's really what happened. Like within half a year, I was managing projects and we're building.
0: I always think uh, of, of what you're talking about is like cultural architecture. It's yeah. understanding the culture of a place. Don't impose our culture on them, but understand their culture and then work with our knowledge to simplify the outcomes, or to um, you know create longer lasting structures, or to create uh, the things that are maybe on a bit of a scale that they can't create. Like how can we, how can we take what they have and listen to them? and then create something that takes them beyond the knowledge of themselves, like without asking them to change their culture.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, primarily what really got me into this was the realization that as I traveled around, I saw that more and more indigenous villages or, or communities were getting inspired by wanting to be like, the western world right uh-huh. so out of a sudden a mud hat becomes a symbol of poverty whilst living in a concrete house <laughs> even if it only has concrete block like stripped naked and a, a you know tin was this,
0: roof was the system was became status
1: Yeah, it became status. And what that contributed towards was us actually losing the connection to the indigenous culture, way of building, knowledge that supports that, and way of utilizing nature, which is unique to in Africa, you build differently, you know, in the Caribbean, you you build differently. And for example, in New Zealand, you will be building differently. And like, how sad would it be for us to forget how to take a palm and make a house out of it, how to, you know, take a bamboo and make a house out? Of it, and so for me, it became more about preservation and about helping reconnect or or maintain that connection to nature, um, so that we can, in some way, be independent from the system. Because, think about it right now to build a house, you have to go to building (laughs) suppliers and spend all this money on some big corporation that owns it to build. But, like, if you don't, you have
0: to use you know different treated timbers, different. Um the, the mainstream product line because it is certified because it's understood because it's um, you know of, of a standard that that country accepts yeah. um, and in that you well, I was gonna say you lose um, you lose some of the local local uh, sort of vernacular but you also you um, homogenize the way things are you know you Absolutely. you homogenize them I, I got a great example of this the other day i was driving i had one of the um ladies i work with she's been working with me for five years and her and i were going to look we're going to a site visit and uh, i said oh we've got to just shoot past this way i want to show you this house and there's a house that was being renovated and the um balustrade rail was all made with um sticks that had been skinned down to you know been debarked and the whole balustrade rail was made of these and she said to me oh that can't be legal and i said why not and she said well how many of those would have been tested to whatever standard um they may not have the, uh, you know, the, the strength capacity. They may not have this. They may not have that. And I was saying to her, I said, "Do you know, they may not. They may exceed it as well.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And,
0: and, you know, that that's where you suddenly get homogenized into just buying a product that somebody else has put a tick on to say that it's the standard because exactly. the cost of testing the other becomes too high.
1: Exactly. And I think, you know, to that point as well, like something that is always mind baffling for me is that since the industrial revolution we invented materials that we just had to certify and we had to make rules around building because okay. when you bring in steel and concrete into the equation you have to have the rules otherwise you know it can be deadly for people so they created building re- regulations after they started to invent all these industrialized materials but before that we used to build for generations and we used to build incredible things look at the Romans with yeah. cement, Roman cement or you know The pyramids, I mean, and also vernacular building around the world, but we never made building regulations. So since the industrial revolution, which was only a hundred years ago, we started to call everything that was before that alternative construction i mean how is this alternative <laughs> that's ridiculous and today today a lot of countries don't have natural building uh regulations and it's like something that is being introduced right now yeah as like an alternative building construction regulations and rules and it's like how is this alternative i mean we used to build with stone with grass, this stuff this you know, stuff was earth. built this
0: way for a thousand years yeah, but, but now it's an alternative. How... Exactly, <laughs> it's
1: ridiculous. I am um... really sometimes sign up for all these things that are absolutely stupid, and we don't think where yep. it came from. Like, how can we call something that was done by our grandfathers or tell it alternative? Like, what's alternative is what's new, not what was there forever.
0: I have a, I have an example of that, which is um, my my children both went to Montessori schools, and yeah. um. Anyway, people would say to us, oh, that's that alternative school. And I'd go, no, 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 no. The school your kids go to is alternative. And they'd look at me and I'd go, well, you know, your one's run by Queensland Help, Queensland education. And, you know, in Queensland, there might be a couple of thousand schools that are all run under the system. Yeah, there's a quarter of a million Montessori schools in the world. And they've been running for, you know, the best part of a hundred years. Um. And they're in all different cultures and everything else. The schooling you're doing is the alternative. The schooling that my kids are doing is this other system that um, maybe isn't as mainstream, but it's certainly not the alternative. It's proven through many cultures, through many other things, um, not just governed by one body locally with their own agenda. So I get I get that. I totally agree. Like I'm, I'm a big fan of ram earth. And uh, in rammed earth structures that I've done or or designed, you know, the biggest thing, first of all, is is to find the engineer who will um, engineer the rammed earth because it doesn't have any engineering. You know, there's a ball drop test with your rammed earth. That's your engineering. And then, yeah, there's mass and everything else, but it's not full of steel. It's not full of these other things. And you don't put steel posts up to hold the rest of the structure. It's Mm. been done that way for, I don't know how many thousands of years, but thousands of years. And uh, yeah, maybe it's been improved as well along the way, but it isn't the alternative. What we're doing now is the alternative to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, technology is advancing. And of course, also within the spectrum of natural building, we are developing new technologies of building. And that's amazing Uh that, um, but in all of it, I think we need to stay open minded and especially be careful as to how we call things. And, you know, for me personally, like going back to the topic of when I started my charity, Tribe Lab, for us, it was sort of all centered around those three principles. One was money. So you ask yourself, where's the money going? Because if I'm trying to help the local people and I'm buying materials from a building supplier, which actually the big boss is American. So American churches are giving us the money. We buy the materials steel and concrete and the money goes back to America. So how are we actually helping Guatemala here? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. First question. Second is, am I empowering these people? You know, are we creating a project where these people can maybe create cohesion, social cohesion, learn something, develop skills, become more independent, make a better income, uh, be supported by their skill sets. For example, a local carpenter that can be employed at this construction site because he's got great wood skills, you know, or whatever. Those are all the questions that you can you know, ask in respect of boosting the local skill set and also economically that local town or whatever you Mm want to help. And then the third thing is obviously the environment, right? Am I building, bringing building materials that have traveled miles upon miles to get here or am I harvesting something that's local? And upon harvesting what's local also, am I, for example, paying for the label that comes from this village so that everyone makes an income out of it? You know, so really just thinking sustainably and holistically about these projects was like the basis of how we worked. And I, I really loved that approach. And, you know, it was a very, certainly a very empowering time. Um, but that was also the experience of running a practice. And I think that's something that we, we wanted to touch upon as well. Yeah, 100%. Um, it's sort of the bridge between what I was doing as a designer running a business and then what I'm doing now doing business coaching, right? Um, and, you know, it very much relates to, to, to the understanding that there is a lot of principles. And I think that a lot of architects can relate, especially if you have your own business, you create your own idea of how you want to help your community, perhaps even hire some people. But then out of a sudden is this whole topic of running the business, you know, it's, a, it's a whole
0: different, a whole different thing. There's architecture oh, and then there's a business.
1: Yeah. And exactly. it could be
0: there's a restaurant and then there's a business or there's food service and then there's a business. Or there's clothing and then there's a business. There's business
1: office. exactly
0: the, yeah, the business is the organization of the um the the service and the way of delivering the service. And yeah. without the business, the service doesn't get delivered. Nobody wins.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it took me a really long time to figure out how to make it work, you know. And I have struggled, certainly struggled with the, um, the how for implementation of each projects. We needed different skill sets and a lot of people. And the money that were coming in um, were not sufficient for fulfilling every everything. Running the office, paying all the staff members, and managing construction and building. Right. So buying materials for building and everything. Um, so that was certainly challenging for me as I was young at the time as well. And, you know, at the time, I think was it was the first time when I realized how architecture is this whole career we're supposed to like grow into, but no one mentions how you actually do this. Like, <laughs> yeah, you learn design thinking, you learn problem solving, but how do you sell yourself? Which basically is how you get your client. If you don't sell yourself, forget about problem solving. <laughs>
0: Exactly. Look, if you look at the stream of business, you have your, you know, your, your, your technical expertise or whatever you want to call it, and that's that's, that's what you're going what to you're deliver. Going to and then you've got from that, you've got your um product. Yeah, that's your product. But then you've got to market it, and then not only market it, you've got to sell it because marketing is one thing, but selling it's another. And yeah. then you've got to deliver it. And In delivering it, you've got to do that with a set of things, which is on time, you know, as promised um, and all the rest, you've got to guarantee it as well, which is another thing. And then ultimately you've got to be able to do that over and over and over again, so that Mm -hmm. you can deliver that first technical part up the top. Yeah, I used to train people in innovation and one of the, um, I do some still, but one of the things that we would say is, as you know, there's five main parts to business. There is what you do, and then there's the, um, so that's product, and then there's, you know, marketing and sales and marketing, but then there's administration and there's management, and then there's um, collaboration and community, you know, like the greater the greater good or brand can fit into that. What's the brand do? Um, You know, what's its values? What does it stand for? How does it stay true to its values? And let's talk about, I love this part. Let's talk about that business side of the business of business, whether it be architecture or anything, but the business of business and in architecture. And I think in a lot of academic stuff, like even in in law and in uh, medical, um, they're not taught to be business people. Mm. that they're, they're just taught to do the function they do
1: yeah not exactly.
0: yeah not to actually how to deliver that function widely and profitably so that mm. they that so that they can continue to do it exactly yeah
1: and it, you know for um for me I think I really didn't. I mean, I knew I'm lacking expertise and knowledge on that topic. And sometimes that came with a very strong imposter syndrome and a f- frustration because I just didn't know how to get better. Better, And the problems that I was facing with uh, making mistakes at the time were painful. You know, it, oh, sure. it's hard.
0: And <laughs> financially comes, painful, not only oh, just um, physically you know, or, or, or mentally that. stressful. I mean, yeah. yeah.
1: When I started this journey of basically leaving the charity I was in debt at that time so it was horrible I mean <laughs> really really horrible and uh, it was painful additionally painful because I went there with a mission and I really believe that if I give I will receive back I don't know it was like I, oh, I'm not gonna worry about this I'm sure the money side of things will take care of itself you know I don't know what I believed but I couldn't give you answers I had no experience so I just believed in, in fairy tales <laughs> yeah <right. laughs> like, like a dreamer does, you know. I've i like, I've,
0: okay. I've got a great friend who's a very very well known an Australia business coach, and he calls it you were you were on the hopium.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was. I was definitely the opium,
0: not the that. opium. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was living on opium, yeah. and and uh, yeah, so so certainly it was quite a it was quite a dark time, and 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 I was hitting thirty, and I thought to myself, number one i cannot be poor in my 30s i'm done being poor like it was this is a line
0: i'm crossing the line
1: (laughs) i can't anymore yeah and so that's one two um you know that's not easy now because what you're gonna do go get a job and like where i'm sorry like i studied in london do you think i'm gonna get a job with a bunch of like schools and houses built out of mud in london I (laughs) i don't think so you know so that was really weird i was like what am i gonna do next and i think the number one answer was coming no matter what happens in your future you have to learn business you have to because that's the number one issue and and i think i was quite certain at the time that i'm very entrepreneurial and i'll just next thing you know i'm gonna have a new idea that i want to invest myself in and i will do it all by myself again so i i said okay business study and at the time, you know, I started to look for online courses and I would find, you know, online training from this university and that university, and maybe it was digital marketing, a six week course, you know, at a price of one and a half thousand, whatever. <coughs> but then you have a proper university education, you get a certificate. It's not a B.A.M.A. or whatever, but you learn uh, from the best and you learn from a business school. And, and that's kind of what was my approach at the time. And I also went to physical events. I, um, I went to some digital marketing events and um, website building events and advertising events. And you know there would be like one or two day conferences and they were selling a lot of different ideas of the brand new digital transformation technology that comes into business for email marketing or you know <laughs> webinars. Yeah. Or, and, and they would always say success leaves clues and look at the very successful business people in different industries out there especially in america where you know that we're using very similar um structures so online courses and um and webinar training and workshops and list building and um and also creating content online uh-huh. so this fascinated me because i saw a future in it and also i thought to myself at the time i remember i was sitting at one of these conferences And um, when I went to Guatemala, I met this incredible architect, Charlie Rendell, who actually is an an anthropologist. His father was an architect, but he became an absolute master of his craft if it comes to bamboo building and earthen construction. And he was building hotels and yoga retreats and Tai Chi temples and amazing housing. I mean, just and the structure of it was like Simon Veles style, you know, like Uh really out there, complicated bamboo engineering um and i always admired him i mean he was so good and he was inventive with the way that uh, he joined uh, the you know created joinery for bamboo and a lot of things like that and so i thought to myself gosh like he's a real master he really is um an expert in architecture you know Uh has years of experience he's so good at building good with his craft and design and build and everything and you know he didn't even have a website I mean, he didn't even have a web. Like, people can't even find him online. And I couldn't believe it's like he, this man, you know, he could not only teach because when I went to his studio and I would ask him, you know, with my projects, I'd say, Charlie, can you look at this design? He would sit there for three hours coaching me in bamboo construction, teaching wow. me, giving me, you know, insight knowledge wow. of engineering and bamboo structure and everything. I mean, if you ever recorded that, people would learn so much about this craft. And I thought, gosh, he doesn't even have a website. And then originally I kind of had this thing, like, I don't know if I know enough, but when I'm learning now about this digital transformation, digital marketing, I want to bring it to people like Charlie. And so because at the time I used to go to a lot of conferences, especially around earth building conferences, Uh bamboo building conferences. I would meet people like Charlie and those were the first people I invited to my program to teach them how to basically monetize on their knowledge. Some followed through, some didn't, but it helped me to create like a signature program which mm-hmm. then I started to promote. And it was very much so about helping architects lead the, with their expertise and create digital products. So it relates to um, sort of creating an independent source of income that is all digital. It's teaching and leading with your expertise. It's building community online and, and helping you as well to differentiate yourself in the market as an architect, not just by saying, hey, I'm, I'm an architect and I build buildings, but saying, you know I specialize in this I'm really good at this I teach it I you know publish academically or maybe give lectures about it too and you know provide a design service alongside to it.
0: So do you think that most architects and designers have a within them have a a a product or a uh, a voice that is worthy of being able to be given to other people, you know, they could express their expertise, and this would a um, niche their product and then grow their business, and then also create them um, a you know like a, an income that is what we'd call mailbox money, you know, where they can create a course, and they maybe them not coaches or whatever particularly, but they can still sell an expertise. That they have developed and grown through um, yeah. that would be valuable to other people. Do you see most people would have that? Or is it 10% of the population? Or you know?
1: So you touched on a very, very interesting and important thing. And what it is is that a lot of times we're too humble to call ourselves experts. And uh-huh. you know, a definition of an expert in in our minds it's like someone who is really up there you know with their knowledge but in reality an expert is a person that can teach you something new and is better at it than you are yeah. and so for example i told you how i went to study business and digital marketing and then i thought about people like charlie to help mm-hmm. them create a website mm-hmm. to help them start teaching And when I went back, I mean, I had, what, three months of education in business and marketing. But at that level, I could already go and help someone else with what I've learned because that person was at level zero of knowledge. And I was at level three months of experience or knowledge. Exactly. Yep. So the thing is, right, when it comes to online training, it's really not about you having to be a PhD in everything to call yourself an expert it's enough that you know something that the other person doesn't. And so if it's maybe at the beginner level and you say, okay, I'm going to teach you beginner AutoCAD, you will find actually a lot of people that want to learn beginner AutoCAD. And as you teach beginner AutoCAD, you're probably going to learn more and more and more. And maybe a year or two from now, you'll do an advanced course on that topic. Mm -hmm. But the, the point that I'm making is you always have to think about what I know that another person might need. And there's people every single day typing into Google questions that relate to your expertise, like, you know, maybe you're interested in facade building and maybe you've Uh been really good with implementing it with a bunch of like glass facades, maybe with a bunch of projects you've built and people out there, different architects will be sitting and thinking, oh, my God, how can I create this type of construction, right? How can I build a glass building facade? and and where else do they go where do they go and ask these questions how do they know as you say
0: they go to google and then somebody pops up who has who has written about it experienced it done something with it there might be 10 people that pop up there might be 100 there might be one Um, yeah
1: but actually to just to give you a perspective on it a lot of times there's no one because In architecture, we still are not used to the idea that like we live in a society and in the world that is so technologically advanced that everything, all the information happens digitally. And so what happens today is when you type this kind of keywords, you will find a bunch of very confusing and overloaded with information books. And so if you wanna have a quick problem solved, how do I do this? and you find books on that topic, it means that now you have to invest, I don't know how much reading time to <laughs> weeks, find out your answer.
0: to and, and maybe. to maybe find the answer. Not to necessarily find, find it, answer, to maybe find and, it.
1: And frankly, why would you need to become now an expert on glass building just because you want to do one, one thing? One facade, building the that so why not? And 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 here's the thing. How are you going to find an expert or a consultant in that topic if no one out there promotes themselves as such? You might, you know, there might be someone in your town even it. who knows that. But is that person actually using the description on LinkedIn to say, I'm an architect, but I also consult in, you know, glass facades or I... You know, I love glass facade building. And this is what I do. And I'm happy to help you create one, right?
0: I, I so, love that. I love that analogy of, you know, if people don't tell you that, if, if there's somebody hasn't telling you that, that, that somebody's doing it or that they're doing it, then you can't find it. You know, like I live in a small town um, north of Brisbane, and uh, we have one of the world's best aquarium builders um, here big scale aquariums and they do projects all around the world and you go what that little company that's just down the road from us is like you know building the aquariums in dubai building these you know amazing things or when i say building them designing and building them and you go unless somebody actually tells you that you don't even know that they exist exactly and that they've got a world expertise in that area Exactly. Mm. It's a it's that's such it a valid point. Such a valid point. I know so that you no, have another podcast that you have to go and do. So yeah,
1: so. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think on that note, I just want to say that, like, for everyone out there, you know, and 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 can't stress it enough. I think the number one takeaway is, and that's the number one thing you should think of marketing wise. You know, if you have your own business, if you're freelancing, or even if you're looking for a job do you communicate what you need or what you have to offer with other people? You know, so it's that number one thing is, what do you put on your social media? If you say you're just an architect and you work for a practice, you are in a commodity market. You are just another person that provides another service that is undefined. Design Design doesn't equal one to another, right? So question is, do you communicate your true value? You know, do you communicate what you love doing with people? Do you communicate um, something that can attract more of the good stuff, the good type of projects, the good type of clients to you? And if you don't, go quickly and do it. You know, change your LinkedIn description to something that really defines who you are and stop with this um, sort of self-sabotaging thoughts of, oh, I'm not good enough to call myself an expert. Listen, you're an expert even if you know to how to count to 10 for someone who doesn't know how to count to 10. <laughs> but
0: it's just as
1: simple as that, you know? I think, so,
0: I, I think there's a really good point, you know, like marketing in general, like I, I do a lot with um Architects Marketing Institute and with it in, in general, you end up with these, there's lots of different ways of marketing, but there is nothing that beats being direct and niching yourself to telling a story. And to tell the story digitally is such a, and, and to be able to have somebody who can help you hone the piece of your story into that right shape. Um, like you do with people into the right shape. And so that they end up in a process that gives them exactly that piece about them that they can deliver to somebody else exactly. is, it is that's the, that's the genius. You know, there's, if, when you can get to that then it accelerates your your um I suppose speed to market but also your ability to be of service to others exactly and being of service to others is actually and if you're an architect or a designer that is your job it, it's not to be yeah. a slave is to be of service and to be of service means that you have to run a profitable business. And this is why business is important um, because then you can continue to be a service to others. But not only that, it's to be able to say, this is the piece of the service that I can do best Mm, and to hone that piece down and then to make it available to others and then to um, teach others about it and take an abundant attitude to it and make the world a better place as we go. I think it's yeah, really and, important.
1: And you know a lot of times when we talk about these things like um I just want to say like it all starts with you and to show yourself more service and more kindness is actually to communicate your value better to the world. So start with what you're doing and how you describe yourself. Because if you imagine you know, going to the next networking event or conference, you, you know that moment when you introduce yourself to someone and they know nothing about you and you say, hi, I'm blah, 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 and I do this. This one sentence can make or break a relationship with that person. It's either they'll be interested in you or not. So do you give yourself that benefit of creating the best opportunity for yourself every single time you introduce yourself? Well, you know, do you do you do that or do you stay in the dark and just, you know, kind of keep it secret or shy? Because at the end of the day, these opportunities can mean more business, can mean profit, well, they, can they, mean
0: and, and above business and profit, they mean that you actually get to share your expertise with somebody, hopefully, and that improves their life.
1: Exactly. That,
0: that, that's the key. You know, you've given a gift. Um, I always think that, you know, you have a, a life's purpose and it doesn't really matter what your life's purpose is provided it doesn't harm anybody else and it benefits other people. And so this is your life's purpose is, is to be able to give your gift to others and by monetizing it and by um, promoting it, you either get to give it to more people or to more select people that just want it. I think that's, a, it. you know, without people like yourself that help people get there, um. The world misses out on amazing people. You know, may, maybe one or two people benefit, but where hundreds could otherwise, or thousands could. I think mm-hmm. it's a. Mm, I love your passion for Thanks. what you do. I just, um, it just, it, it oozes out of you. You're, you, you know, like you are there 100%. You're 100% present. You just make it something that is undeniably possible. And that uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful gift you have that you do that with people.
1: Thank you. So, so, so kind of you to say, and I really think that, you know, I'm still growing my business and I'm trying a lot of things. And um, this year I started to create events because I think it's really important that we bring to stage people that already um, have the level of expertise that they can share and also uh-huh. are um, of a good example of what certain strategies or, or business um, models are like and have they developed. And uh, I really want to bring that sort of diverse uh, education uh, to the community of architects, hopefully by that, you know promoting better practice and better um, uh, better ways of better mindset for business and entrepreneurship. Um, and so, yeah, like, uh, it is, it is definitely still a, a journey that is growing and developing, but it's very inspiring and it definitely helps me grow as well. And very happy to see when the community, um, you know, sort of gets the, the benefit of all of it. A hundred
0: percent. Yeah. hundred percent. After... Um, exactly. you're going to give me some details on what you're doing with those events. And we're going to post that with the podcast
1: thank you
0: sure a hundred percent so that and uh, look I'm, I'm looking forward to taking part in them with you it's excellent uh, <laughs> I I really am I think there's just so much to be um taken from being around like-minded people and
1: exactly.
0: growing in the same direction and benefiting as many other people out there as we can as we grow I think it's a,
1: absolutely a beautiful no, definitely. Gift. super important you know super important because how else are we going to learn uh, what works and what doesn't if uh, unless we share all of this with one another and listen also to other uh-huh. people um to 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 become better at what we're doing
0: yeah yeah and that's the journey of architecture as well
1: Exactly.
0: with that I know you have to leave for your um appointment So I've kept you for longer than I was meant to anyway. Um, I would like to thank you so much for making the time. It's been absolutely fabulous talking with you. And I'm looking forward to our next conversation, which won't be far away. Um, Thank you again. Really, really fabulous. Really appreciate it. And we will post all your details.
1: Thank you. Looking forward. Thanks so much.
0: Take care. We'll talk soon.
1: You too. Bye.
2: Bye. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch- chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you that type of thing so this is called takeaway selling so the first question you ask you say well why don't you just leave the situation as it is why why make the change that's an unusual thing for a designer to say why not just leave it as it is and see how they answer and then you might say why did you want to speak to me why did you not get someone else and see if they follow you see if they answer properly and the third question would be well Why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it, because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talkdesign. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.